0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing, whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker. You'll find what you came for here, and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. When Soviet forces mounted an invasion of Afghanistan in December 1979, they entered a nation already in the grips of a complex civil war. The resulting occupation and escalating internal tensions would go on to shape not only modern Afghanistan, but also the course of the Cold War and subsequent international relations. Elizabeth Leake, professor of a new book on the subject, Afghan Crucible, spoke to Matt Elton about the invasion and its consequences.
1: Your new book is about the 1979 Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and the sort of the roots and I suppose the consequences of that moment. How would you like people to view that particular episode?
2: I think the kind of key takeaway I want from this book and kind of from this project was to sort of rethink um, the nature of conflict in Afghanistan, and also to rethink, I suppose, chronologies or kind of the timelines or timescales of, of, of conflict in Afghanistan. Um, I think so much of our focus has been on the 21st century, kind of the idea of a 20-year war in Afghanistan involving the United States. But I think really what my book shows is that the conflict has a much longer trajectory that really has its roots in a lot of ways with the Soviet invasion of 1979. But it's also a conflict that's not just about kind of foreign countries invading Afghanistan. It's also a conflict in which different Afghan interest groups and parties took a really leading role in as well.
1: So, if we were to sketch back the very origins of this conflict, where would you say the roots first uh, lay, if you like?
2: Yeah, so I s- effectively start the book in kind of the beginning of the 20th century and kind of in terms of kind of providing some context for for the book and I really root a lot of the developments that emerge First, with the April 1978 coup that brings the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan, so the Afghan socialists to power, who are allied with the Soviets, um, and then the Soviets who then um, invade in December of 1979. I really root a lot of those dynamics um, in, in, I suppose, kind of the modernizing impulses of a lot of different educated Afghan elites and intellectuals, and looking at the ways that they really developed Um, some really fascinating ideas about what a modern Afghan state should look like. And so a lot of those sort of modernizing impulses really start coming to the fore early in the 20th century within Afghanistan. And then in the mid-20th century, particularly in the 1960s, during a period that's really sort of known as the constitutional period within Afghanistan, that really provides a really important moment when a lot of different Afghan political organizations start to form especially around kind of major cities like Kabul. Kabul University campus is is a kind of a hotbed of political radicalization and mobilization. And I think it's really at that moment that we see the rise of a lot of different sort of visions of what Afghanistan should look like. And these visions are driven by Afghan lecturers, Afghan students, um, you know, members of the government, kind of broader members of the intelligentsia. And we really see, I suppose, kind of the pluralization of ideas of what Afghanistan should be. And I think it's really those ideas and debates about what Afghan modernity look like that actually drive a lot of the conflict that then emerges in the 1970s and 80s.
1: What was the ruling system like during the period that all these ideas were coming to fruition, if you like?
2: Yeah, so in the 1960s, Afghanistan um, was, effectively became a constitutional monarchy. So power really still rested in the hands of the King Zahir Shah, um, who was the head of a ruling dynasty in the Musaheben family. And he was really interested on one hand in kind of political liberalisation. He's responsible for creating this constitution that allows for increased Afghan political engagement. But on the other hand, too, he was still certainly intent on kind of retaining his power as well. So there's this sort of tension that really emerges in Afghanistan in the 60s between kind of this this broader excitement and this broader desire amongst many Afghans to become more politically engaged in the government. And the government, in turn, under the king is somewhat somewhat keen to encourage that, but also not entirely keen to encourage that and kind of still wants to kind of retain this hold on power Um, So there's a real tension that sort of emerges there that I think just kind of continues to kind of continues to grow then throughout the late 1960s and 70s.
1: And just how broad a range of different systems were people thinking about in this period? Was it a huge range of, of various sorts of government?
2: Oh, yeah, the range. I mean, the range is massive. I mean, Afghanistan, I think in that respect was like you know, any country in the decolonizing world, or really just like any country across the world, really in that respect, in terms of the different sorts of ideas that that different groups were putting forward. Um, so yes, yeah, certainly there were groups that were you know very keen to have kind of a constitutional monarchy. Others were more focused on kind of parliamentary rule, um, kind of a parliamentary system with kind of two houses. Some of the more radical groups, there were a lot of different Maoist groups, for example. There were multiple Marxist, Leninist, or socialist groups as well that emerged. There were other groups that were more interested in kind of more, kind of, I suppose, Western-style liberalization and modernization, taking a much more kind of a slower stance And then, of course, there were, as as well then, there were different groups of political Islamist groups as well, who saw kind of this fusion of politics and Islam as another sort of key way for Afghanistan to move forward politically and socially. So the range is just absolutely massive.
1: Is it right to see these groups of people as trying to position Afghanistan or try to work out what the nation's identity was in this new era?
2: Yes, I think so. I mean, I think a lot of these groups were really wrestling with kind of this question of what does it mean to be Afghan? Not only kind of what does it mean to be Afghan, but what does it mean to be Afghan in terms of linking back to Afghanistan's longer history, but also then kind of the broader international circumstances in which Afghanistan and Afghans found themselves in the mid-20th century. So certainly on one hand, there's these sorts of questions, I suppose, that a lot of Afghans were asking about this question of kind of nationhood or national identity and where, where did kind of historical, ethnic or social or regional differences or divisions potentially fit in within a unified nation state. I think groups had really different answers to what that meant. But equally as well, you know, so many of these political organizations, you know, they were engaging with such international ideas, whether that was, you know, reading Mao or reading Marx or, you know, reading, you know, someone like Sayyid Qutb, who's a, you know, a key figure with the Muslim Brotherhood in, in Egypt. So I think these these Afghans are also simultaneously engaging with the ways that nationalism is being debated in other countries across the world. Um, So sort of a fusion in that respect of kind of thinking about kind of more global universalist ideas about what does it mean to be a citizen in a modern state, but also then what does it mean more specifically to be an Afghan citizen in a modern state and bringing in longer term Afghan history.
1: So you have these competing models, if you like. What was the moment at which this became a more Uh, fractious situation.
2: It's a sort of layered fractiousness, which I know is not a very helpful or easy answer. Um, I think one of the things that's really interesting is that kind of internal divisions emerge within the different political organizations that emerge in the 1960s almost immediately. So for example, looking at a political organization like the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan, so the PDPA, who comes to power that in 1978, infighting basically splits that party in half almost, I think, within 18 months of its actual formation. So we see kind of clashes between different personalities, um, specifically between Nur Muhammad Taraki on one hand and Babrak Karmal on the other, which leads to a division within the party. But they also have slightly different interpretations, too, of how Marxism, Leninism should be applied within Afghanistan. So we see sort of intellectual as well as personal kind of conflicts emerging almost immediately. And while the Soviet Union and the Politburo are able to sort of encourage a reunification of these two different PDPA factions in the 1970s, one of the things that's really noticeable then is that the party almost immediately starts infighting again after coming to power in April 1978, and this huge fracture within the party that really kind of helps to further aggravate the civil war that erupts in Afghanistan after 1978, and that also provides one of the impetuses for the Soviet invasion as well. So some of these divisions are emerging quite early on, and I think it's because of this sort of, on one hand, kind of the excitement and the promise of these ideas that are being debated within these organizations, whether the PDPA, the PDPA, or within something like Jamit Islami Afghanistan, so the Islamic Society of Afghanistan, where again you see fractures again emerging early on between different leaders who again don't necessarily get along with each other, but also have rather slightly different interpretations too of how Islam should or could be applied politically as well as socially within Afghanistan. So I think a lot of the fractures that I think emerge but don't necessarily have such tangible consequences in the 1960s, then had these really vast consequences later in the 1970s and 80s.
1: You mentioned there that when the party first split, after 18 months or so, the Soviet Union was able to help sort of reconcile those two things, which makes it sound like the Soviet Union had long been interested in what was happening in Afghanistan, which I'm, I'm, I'm guessing is the case. When did they? When did the Soviet Union first get involved in this internal situation?
2: Firstly, so the Soviet Union and Afghanistan certainly have a much, I think, a much longer relationship than, than is commonly recognized. I mean, it's I would say it's a common narrative amongst scholars, but perhaps not so much publicly. But I mean, I think one of the things that's really interesting to think about if we kind of take a much longer perspective um, is that Afghanistan's King Amanullah was one of the very first international leaders to recognize the October Revolution and, and the creation of a communist Russia. So he he corresponds almost immediately with Lenin, for example, recognizing this new government. So there is this much longer history of Afghan-Soviet relationships, and, and, the, and the Soviet Union throughout the 1950s and 1960s um, time and again offered a lot of economic support, in particular to Afghanistan within the context of the Cold War, huge amounts of financial aid. You know, paid for a lot of Afghans as well, for example, to go to the Soviet Union, go to Czechoslovakia and other members of the Eastern Bloc unions for training and education, etc. So the Soviet Union in that respect was quite keen in a lot of ways for Afghanistan to sort of fall within, I guess, fall within its sort of remit within the Cold War from a very early stage. That being said, then I suppose one of the things that's really interesting is that the Soviets really had a pretty ambivalent perspective on kind of the promises of, I suppose, communism or socialism within Afghanistan. One of the things that's really interesting is that, especially kind of with the power of retrospect, some key members of the KGB or the um, the Soviet Union's International Department really expressed their hesitations and their skepticism about not only the ways that members of the PDPA understood communism, but also kind of what their plans were for kind of implementing it within Afghanistan. You know, they had really active debates as to whether Afghanistan was really ready or able to become a socialist state and ultimately a communist state. But at the same time, they did feel this need, I suppose, to at least, you know, to still show favour or, or or some support to this local local party.
1: And as we head into 1978, what happened within Afghanistan that sort of precipitated the next stage of this story?
2: The 1970s are kind of are a period of, I think, simultaneous sort of unrest and frustration for many Afghans. So in 1973, there's a coup, a political coup that takes place. The king's cousin, Mohammed Daud Khan, comes to power peacefully um, whilst the king is out of the country. And he does so with an alliance with local kind of political organizations and political groups, including one faction of the PDPA. And so initially, a lot of political organizations are fairly sort of excited about his his new power, and especially because they hope that he will kind of create new political changes that will give these groups, um, especially the Afghan socialists, additional influence within the government. That quickly proves not to be the case. And so there's increasing frustration, not only amongst political organizations like the PDPA, there's political frustration amongst the Afghan Islamists um, who actually do try to start a rebellion against Daoud in 1975, they absolutely fail. But one of the things that's really interesting and important is that because th- these Islamist groups fail to sort of foment this rebellion, many of its leaders are forced to flee at that time then to Pakistan. But it's then those sort of, I suppose, those cells of fighters and organizers who are in Pakistan who then subsequently become you know, really key leaders of the resistance against Um, against the Soviets in the 1980s. So there's kind of this sort of political unrest taking place of this Afghan-Islamist rebellion, frustrations amongst members of the Afghan communists and other sort of uh, other political groups with the fact that Daoud doesn't sort of follow through with any his promises. There are actually very, very few sort of governing changes within Afghanistan. I think people increasingly feel really disaffected with the government. They don't believe that Daoud's really going to sort of change change any of the politics or social dynamics. And so it's in that context then, um, and kind of against that backdrop, that the PDPA is able to mobilize and organize, um, I think to everyone's surprise, this military-backed coup in April 1978 that leads to the violent overthrow of and and as well as his murder and the killing of most of his family and advisors.
1: And how is this new regime received by the people of Afghanistan? There,
2: I think there was a really, really mixed reaction. Um, I think, I mean, especially I think given this context of what had happened in the last, you know, the last, ten, you know, five to ten years with the fact that there just been, a, you know, just been a coup. Um, what, five years, five years previously. So I think in that respect, I think there was initially a fair bit of ambivalence or sort of kind of, I think a lot of questions floating around about, well, how much is this actually going to change the state of play in Afghanistan, right? So, you know, if, there's, if this coup that Dowd had in 1973 and at that time he was like, this is going to revolutionize Afghanistan, I'm going to completely change the face of Afghan politics and society, um, but that didn't happen, so I think similar questions then emerged from many Afghans. and when their very similar rhetoric emerges with the PDPA in April 1978, when again Nur Muhammad Taraki, the leader of the PDPA, he comes onto the radio waves in Afghanistan. You know, he's got these speeches printed in the Kabul Times, and again he's saying, you know, this is a revolution of the Afghan people. We're going to, you know, completely revolutionize everything about Afghan politics and society. Um, you know, we're going to return power to the people. So I suspect that there was a kind of a a kind of a, I think, questions, I think, kind of questions as to kind of what what does that actually mean Um, and kind of how, you know, is this actually going to take place? So I think certainly, certainly amongst the PDPA supporters, I think there was I mean, there was certainly a lot of excitement. Um, in my book, I cite this poem that I won't recite now by, you know, an Afghan civil servant who was, who was you know, who had allegiances to the PDPA. And he writes this poem on the day of the coup saying, you know, effectively, like, you know, like, my heart is singing, like, this is going to change Afghanistan forever. In contrast to that, I think for other Afghan, you know, political activists who were familiar with the PDPA's sort of ideas and political leanings, but who didn't necessarily agree with them, I think there was certainly a degree Uh, both scepticism and concern as to what the PDP actually wanted to do within the country. But I think initially, I think for most everyone, I think there were just sort of questions as to what, you know, what was this coup actually going to mean in practice? Was it actually going to change anything? Or was it just going to be, you know, just like the 1973 coup where a lot of promises were made, but nothing really changed on the ground? How,
1: How quickly did those changes become clear?
2: So I would say, I suppose, kind of with the power of retrospect fairly quickly, but also at the same time, not entirely. Like, they weren't immediately evident. You know, I think one of the things that's really important to recognize, you know, especially thinking about the PDPA and its activities, is that certainly, you know, someone like Taraki, um and his allies were very aware of, I suppose, the kind of tricky, not only national, but international circumstances into which they were stepping into power. So I think one of the things... That's interesting, for example, is that on one hand, you know, Taraki, in meetings with Soviet officials, you know, he, he you know, effectively immediately is like, this is, you know, you know, this is our October revolution. You know, this is, you know, this is our moment to, you know, to completely change Afghan politics and society. In contrast, when Taraki meets with American officials around the same time, you know, he was very, very wary of mentioning anything Related to socialism or communism, and in turn, really framed the coup in terms of democratization or liberalization. So, I think in that sense, too, we really see the PDPA, at least initially, trying to walk this sort of fine line between making clear that it had these real ambitions um, for political and social change within Afghanistan, but also trying to make sure that it didn't aggravate, I suppose, regional or international relations too much. Taraki, then, in a radio broadcast fairly shortly after the coup, does lay out the sort of vision or this program for what he wants to accomplish within Afghanistan. That radio broadcast is really telling in terms of showing the breadth of the PDPA's ambitions. So he spends, you know, he lists a huge number of economic reforms, including things like land reform. You know, he includes this huge list of social reforms he wants to to pursue, including, you know, kind of this question about human rights, um, rights for women, thinking about kind of i suppose what he frames to is a like class based rights you know he talks about how he wants to reform afghanistan's foreign policy you know and re- like reassure countries across the world that afghanistan is going to remain non-aligned so he has this really ambitious program but it doesn't really get framed in terms of i suppose so kind of socialist intentions very explicitly um, until i think some some months later i suppose it's later in 1978 when kind of the 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 more overt socialist overtones become a lot clearer. Um, and I think that's especially the case when when land reform is announced in particular, because that is a particularly radical economic change that that the PDPA brings in, um, particularly with kind of this, you know, fundamental sweeping land redistribution program um, that really disrupts kind of economic systems across Afghanistan, but especially in rural Afghanistan.
1: Is, is that one of the key factors that led to the backlash that happened in March 1979?
2: I think, I mean, it's certainly one of them, but I think it fits within this sort of broader milieu of economic and social changes. Um, so scholars have paid a lot of attention to land reform. And and to be fair, I do as well. In my book, you know, scholars also think about kind of uh, and talk about some of the reforms he tries to pursue, or the PDPA tries to pursue in terms of like the, the role and rights of women. One of the things that became really clear to me and anthropologists uh, at the time, so in the late 1970s, were really making this point time and again. One of the really big problems that the PDPA faced was that they had these massive, you know, they had these hugely ambitious ideas. um, But in terms of implementing them, I think that's one of the areas where it really fell short. So the PDPA would have this tendency to send sort of cadres of party members, you know, out into the countryside. They would briefly oversee this redistribution of land and then, you know, say job done and, and head back to their bases. So they didn't actually think about, in I suppose, very concrete terms about the ways that sort of land redistribution, for example, disrupted older practices of trade, older sort of borrowing and lending systems. They didn't think about how, you know, how were these new landowners going to, you know, acquire, you know, the appropriate tools or the seeds that they needed for farming, So there's a real problem here in terms of ideas and aspirations on one side um, and implementation on the other. And you see this sort of across the board with a lot of the different reforms that the PDPA pursues. So that sort of tension between ideas and implementation then is sort of one real key issue that the PDPA confronts that really undermines its power. But there are two other factors, of course, that also really kind of shape and lead to this mobilization. Another one is certainly kind of the, I suppose, the very... Dismissive and even pejorative way. A lot of PDPA leaders talked about Islam, um, and particularly the ways that the PDPA tried to undercut local leaders, whether kind of leaders who derive their power from religion, from from kind of from Islam or from other local circumstances. So the PDPA basically tries to undercut those leaders entirely, rather than trying to sort of subsume them into political systems. So that creates a real political tension as does, of course, that the PDP is really sort of hostile language and about Islam and frequently kind of treating Islam almost as the enemy of the state and the enemy of the people. I would say ultimately perhaps the, the really key issue is, is that it's not just the rhetoric around Islam. It's not just about the kind of the really shoddy implementation of of these reforms. It's also the PDP is extremely ready and willing turn to violence. And I think that's perhaps probably the key reason that the civil war grows so quickly and becomes so widespread, I think, especially in terms of sort of eliminating local leaders who are seen as sort of enemies of the state, you know, whether clerics or kind of community leaders, um, or in terms of you know of, of trying to pursue these different um, reforms across the country, the PDPA is very, very ready and willing to imprison leaders, to torture them, you know, so many, you know, to massacre. Um, anybody who shows sort of any sort of resistance to the changes taking place. So I think it's that, you know, that ready use of violence really creates a real political crisis as well and really undermines any claims the PDPA would have potentially had to legitimacy.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
2: What's really clear is that every single different group involved in the Afghan civil war in the 1980s is involved for very different and often very selfish reasons.
1: So what led the Soviets to make the decision to invade this really febrile atmosphere, this really kind of country that's tearing itself apart?
2: Again, it's complicated. You know, the Soviets, once the PDPA comes to power, you know, throws its support behind the PDPA, you know, and, and, you know, immediately announces its support for Taraki, and the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan and the, you know, the newly renamed Democratic Republic of Afghanistan. So there are a lot of different sort of, I suppose, debates that then take place within sort of Soviet decision-making circles as they're watching, you know, the PDPA effectively implode once they're in power. Um, I think one of the things that's really interesting is that, you know, Soviet advisors with the embassy in Afghanistan and Soviet officials who fly into Kabul, who fly into Afghanistan um, to meet with local Afghan rulers um, and elites, you know, time and again, they, they, they counsel their counterparts in Afghanistan to try to slow down this revolutionary process, you know, to avoid infighting within the party. Um, you know, they suggest that that the PDPA needs to think about building alliances with local leaders rather than killing them, um, and to really kind of think more carefully about how how it rests in power. The PDPA does not listen. You know, Taraki in particular completely ignores this advice, and so as a consequence, then, the Soviets really look on them with dismay as as the party implodes. So these two factions I mentioned within the PDPA. You know, again, you know, rupture. And the and the and the Soviets are really concerned about that. And so there's this increasing sense though that because they're they're allied, and the fact that I suppose Afghanistan is a self-proclaimed communist state on the very borders of the Soviet Union, you know, it would be a huge, this was international, a huge embarrassment to the Soviets then if this communist project failed. So I think there's that sort of sense of sort of concern about kind of the Soviet image. But there's also, I suppose, a broader sort of international context as well that really informs, I think, Soviet decision-making, especially in the Politburo. And this has a lot to do with Soviet successes, or at least I should say self-perceived successes of the Soviet Union, um, particularly in terms of the ways that the Soviets had engaged with and intervened um, in some of the... um, I guess some of the political unrest that was taking place in Africa as well, especially in the sort of context of the Cold War, um, and the Soviets. I suppose the Politburo at that time was fairly confident that it had been successful, for example, in the Horn of Africa in terms of encouraging encouraging new socialist governments into power, and so that sort of model to some extent is 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 sort of exported to Afghanistan. This belief that because the Soviets had been successful in supporting socialist regimes to come to power in other parts of the world, that they should be equally successful in Afghanistan. So I suppose in that sense, too, it's very interlinked then in terms of these ideas about the Soviet Union's place in the world, but also, I suppose, this slight hubris as well in terms of thinking, well, we've been successful, you know, we were successful in Ethiopia, we were successful in Angola, so why shouldn't we be successful here? You know, of course, we with the power of retrospect, we're like, success is... Is questionable, as we know, I think, in a lot of these different countries. Um, But I think those sorts of ideas or blinkers really sort of shape the Soviet decision then to go ahead and continue to support the PDP in Afghanistan, but under new leadership that is backed by the Soviet Union.
1: And how is the Soviet decision regarded elsewhere in the world? And I suppose, how does it change how other nations in the world see Afghanistan? Or does it?
2: I think that one of the things that's really interesting about the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, is that internationally speaking, it is, I think, almost, you know, outside of kind of this the kind of Eastern bloc, it's almost unilaterally condemned by countries across the world. And I tackle this sort of question about the international responses when I look at as particularly the debates that take place within the United Nations about the Soviet invasion. And what's really interesting is kind of how widespread condemnation of the Soviet invasion was, but also then the sort of frames of reference that different countries bring to bear. On why, why this action is just seen as being so abhorrent. So certainly, you know, you know, with, if we think about sort of the United States or a lot of countries in Western Europe, and kind of, I suppose, in effect, sort of NATO countries and kind of the United States Cold War Alliance system, you know, certainly a lot of those countries frame the Soviet invasion in Cold War terms and in terms of kind of Soviet aggression and kind of and and thinking about how it's made Afghanistan effectively a Cold War battlefield. And this is a threat because of the potential spread of communism. And there's a lot of rhetoric too about how this potentially will lead to the spread of communism into Southwest Asia, into the Persian Gulf, etc. So there's that kind of major Cold War sort of framing by a lot of these sort of Western states. On the other side, there's also I think this really important rhetoric that takes place, and you really see this in the UN General Assembly in particular, um, with countries, you know, especially across Africa, the Middle East, and Asia. Um, as well as Latin America to an extent, where they really react very hostilely to the invasion in the context of decolonization at the end of the European empires. And they really frame the Soviet invasion as an imperial takeover. And the Soviet Union is basically attempting to build an empire. And it's this question about kind of the sanctity of the nation state as an independent political unit that really becomes a question of debate. This idea that Afghan self-determination has basically been eliminated because Afghans no longer have the choice because they're now under the control of a foreign power. So we really see in that sense an intersection in terms of the international outcry against the Soviet invasion between kind of these anti-colonial, anti-imperial critiques on one hand and the sort of Cold War um, antagonism and fear of antagonism on the other.
1: We should probably talk about the sort of the human cost of this conflict and the experience of this for people in Afghanistan. How how devastating was this civil war and then this invasion?
2: I mean, the civil war and, and invasion are just utterly devastating. I think just about in every single way, if we think about Afghanistan, um, to kind of just give, I suppose, two really brief sort of, I suppose, examples or almost statistics I mean, in in 1990, the UN High Commission for Refugees estimated that more than six million Afghans um, had had to flee because of because of the conflict. So they estimated that about roughly six million Afghan refugees were living in Pakistan and Iran, and then there were further, you know, there were further tens or hundreds of thousands of Afghans who had fled even further abroad to Europe or to North America. And alongside that, there were thousands upon thousands of Afghans who had also had to um, migrate or flee within Afghanistan. So they'd had to leave their homes or their villages to settle, particularly in places like Kabul, in order to escape fighting. So the sheer, the violence, I think the trauma of the war really can't be understated. Um, And the fact that so many Afghans chose to flee or were forced to flee their homeland because of the war is really telling The other, I suppose, factor that we can think about, again, from reporting from the UNHCR, I should say, so the UN High Commission for Refugees was really, really actively engaged with Afghanistan and the Afghan refugee crisis throughout the 1980s and and into the early 1990s. And at the time of the Soviet withdrawal in February 1989, the UNHCR also attempted to do a survey of all of Afghanistan's provinces to gauge the extent to which Afghan refugees would be able to return home. And the bottom line from those surveys was effectively the UNHCR concluded that, that almost none of Afghanistan's provinces were able to support returning Afghan refugees because of just the sheer devastation um, of so many of, 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 of the local infrastructures. You know, roads were mined. Pastures had been dug up. Every, there was so much destruction. There was, so you know, the cost of rebuilding was going to be so high that it wasn't really actually feasible for a lot of Afghan refugees at that point in 1989 to be able to return home. So in that sense, I think those two sort of statistics, you know, more than six million refugees, this belief or the conclusion that Afghan that Afghan provinces couldn't sustain a return of the entire Afghan population, you know, I think those collectively show kind of the devastation of the conflict.
1: Talking about people who had been forced to leave Afghanistan or had felt they had to leave, uh, you mentioned earlier that there was a group of intellectuals who had left to go to Pakistan uh, in previous years to this. Did they now play an important role in this story going forward?
2: Yes. So um, they played a a really interesting and very important role going forward. Um, I should say an important role going forward, not just from the moment of kind of the, the PDPS coup and the Soviet invasion, but throughout the 1980s into the 1990s into the 21st century as well. Um, so yeah, so I, I should say, kind of, so from the kind of mid-1970s and really accelerating after the April 1978 coup, there's an increasing number of Afghan intellectuals and elites and kind of former officials or former leaders who flee to Pakistan um, and and to Iran as well, uh, because they're being you know they're being identified and killed and targeted by the PDPA. Politically speaking, there's a really wide array of different Afghans who become who settle around Pakistan in particular, um, and who have different ideas about kind of ha- not only how the war against the Afghan socialists and their Soviet backers should be fought, but also have very different ideas about kind of what a post-conflict Afghanistan should look like. In my book, I particularly focus on some of the Afghan Islamist parties, Um, and there there are a couple of reasons for that. So yeah, as I said, so these Afghan Islamist leaders, people like Gulbuddin, Hekmatyar, and Rabani, who are kind of two key leaders, they had been active and mobilizing in and around Peshawar from 1975, so after that failed rebellion. So that's really important because effectively, they were already ready to fight the PDPA, almost from the moment of the coup, right? They already have local organizational structures, um, and they'd really spent the preceding years sort of debating and thinking about kind of what were their political ideas for Afghanistan? You know, how did they see potential models for Islam to infuse both politics and society in Afghanistan moving forward? So I focus particularly on Jamini Islami, so the Islamic Society of Afghanistan, and Hizb-Islami, the Islamic Party of Afghanistan, in my book, And the reason I focus on these two parties in particular is because they had actually quite different ideas of of how Islam should, you know, what Islam's political functions could and should be within Afghanistan. But they're also two of the organizations that end up coming to the fore of the resistance. I should note, so um, Hizb-Islami in particular was especially favored by Pakistan's inner services intelligence. Um, So, you know, gets a disproportionate amount of external funding and is consequently in a really I suppose unique position to help kind of fight fight the war in Afghanistan. Jamin Islami gets slightly less funding from ISI, but it has it has alliances with very you know very famous resistance leaders who remain based in Afghanistan. Um, so Ahmad Shah Massoud is really kind of the you know the key I suppose archetype of that. And you know in a lot of ways he becomes the face of the conflict, and of the war against the Soviets for you know for a lot of Western and especially European audiences. So these, so these two organizations become especially influential then in terms of kind of having the resources and being given the resources to fight against the Soviets and the PDPA. But also then alongside that, what's really noticeable is that these parties, and they're not alone in this in, in and around Pakistan, but they also take a really active role within the Afghan refugee camps. So they not only use the Afghan refugee camps, I think unsurprisingly, as a recruiting ground, but they also take a much more sort of social and political role within these camps, you know, and so they effectively, they help settle disputes that emerge within kind of Afghan refugee communities, you know, they build their own hospitals, they build their own schools, um, they deliver aid alongside that, that which the UNHCR is giving, um, etc. And so as a consequence, then, you know, they're able to gain followers and gain influence, you know, in a way that's really almost disproportionate and w- in ways... I suppose which makes this war in Afghanistan very, very different and very unique, um, I suppose, from other sorts of kind of conflicts involving regime change in Afghanistan from earlier in the 19th or 20th century. I kind of describe the 1980s as the sort of perfect nexus between, I suppose, international aid, the influence of Pakistan, who's, you know, with under Zia, who's pursuing his own Islamization policies, you know, these is, local Islamist leaders who, you know, have this longer history of political mobilization, this refugee crisis, as well as this cross-border civil war. And it's kind of the combination of all of these factors is really important and, and I ultimately argue increasingly makes the civil war effectively a battle between a political Islamist Afghanistan on one hand or a socialist Afghanistan on the other. So kind of the opportunities or avenues for other sorts of political forms in Afghanistan become increasingly muted because they just don't have the same sort of opportunities to embed themselves in a lot of ways.
1: One of the really interesting things about this story is, by sort of zooming in and seeing this conflict as not just sort of an outpost of the Cold War, but as something in its own right, you realise how complicated it is and how many different groups and factors and agents there are. Do you think this complexity is one of the reasons that the invasion and the conflict lasted such a long time.
2: Definitely. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that I discovered, I think, with research and writing this book, yeah, it's so complicated. You know, I have to say, writing this book was so challenging. And there were so many different factors and so many groups I still had to leave out because there just wasn't space. And because of the story I was telling was already so complicated. I talk about so many different groups of historical actors. But I think one of the things that really stood out to me is yes, it's, you know, the fact that this is a really, it's a, it's a very layered and interconnected conflict. And I think what's really clear is that every single different group involved in the Afghan civil war in the 1980s is involved for very different and often very selfish reasons. So certainly, you know, if we think about something like these Afghan Islamist political organizations or the, or the PDPA, these groups, you know, in a lot of ways have very you know, very straightforward aspirations. You know, they want to rule Afghanistan and they want to reshape and reform Afghan politics and society in a very specific way based on their kind of ideologies. But that story becomes completely complicated and sort of, you know, thrown thrown into disarray then because not only of something like the refugee crisis, but then also kind of the ways that regional powers meddle. Certainly Pakistan plays a really key role in in this whole history but so do other regional powers like Iran, India, and China, Saudi Arabia as well. And then, of course, on top of this, we have this whole kind of Cold War competition with the U.S. and the Soviets, as well as then this really sort of quite difficult and challenging role um, for international organizations like the United Nations or the UNHCR who become involved but are kind of limited in the ways that they can become involved. Um, But I think one of the things kind of from looking at the kind of these different layers and the ways that they interconnect is that one of the reasons the conflict ends up lingering is because all of these different actors have very different understandings of what. What is Afghanistan and who are Afghans? And how should Afghanistan fit within international politics at this time? And I think kind of one of the best examples to illustrate this is really actually to look at the United States. The United States is the country who takes Afghanistan and these sort of Afghan political groups the least seriously. So the thing that became really clear with my research... Um, is that, you know, American officials, um, especially in the Central Intelligence Agency, but also across a lot of other government departments, you know, in the 1980s, um, the 1970s and 1980s, time and again, American officials keep referring back to the same sort of British colonial rhetoric that was used to define Afghanistan and Afghans when, when the British Empire was alive. So this means, you know, American officials almost entirely frame the civil war in Afghanistan um, and the and how and why Afghans are taking part in the civil war in terms of Afghans being backwards, tribal, and resistant to change. You know, this framing is, you know, stands in utter contrast to the ways that something like, you know, like the Afghan Islamists are defining themselves, or the ways that the Afghan, the PDPA is defining itself. You know, these Afghan political organizations are extremely radical and modern in their aspirations. And I suppose U.S. officials are really unable to recognize that or to take that into account. They're really convinced um, that this this is effectively a tribal uprising or insurrection and that Afghans just want to return to kind of a pre-war time, not that they're interested in or engaging in any sort of kind of forms of political change. And that view really fundamentally limits the ways in which the United States becomes involved in the conflict. Reagan is much happier to just, you know, kind of, say that he supports, you know, so-called Afghan freedom fighters, but he's not interested in what a political settlement actually looks like. He's not, and Bush after him as well, neither interested in kind of what sort of Afghan political, you know, political project emerges after a Soviet withdrawal. Um, And I really think that that is a history in particular where we really see long-term consequences. Um, You know, and the fact that a lot of American Rhetoric in the 21st century about Afghanistan hadn't changed and again focuses on Afghanistan is tribal, Afghanistan is backwards, um, you know, Afghanistan is uncivilized. You know, these are really pejorative framings that are also in a lot of ways extremely inaccurate and extremely reductive. So I think we see a lot of the roots of American misunderstandings in the 21st century in the 20th.
1: When did the Soviets withdraw? And to what extent did that actually represent an end to this conflict? From
2: the middle of 1980, the UN uh, received a mandate from its member states to to lead negotiations um, for a Soviet withdrawal. Um, And these UN-led negotiations effectively take the entirety of the 1980s. And it's not until April 1988 that the Geneva Accords are signed, uh, through which the Soviets agree to withdraw their troops. So the Soviet troop withdrawal begins in 1988 and concludes by February 1989. This, however, does not effectively lead to an end of the war in any way, shape, or form. I think one of the things that's really important to recognize is if we think about the UN, these UN-led negotiations, I think those negotiations lead both to like the promises of international organizations and their involvement, but also really reveals the shortcomings as well of the negotiations and why civil war persisted. So the UN-led negotiations involved four different parties, the United States, the Soviet Union, the government of Pakistan, and the government of Afghanistan, aka the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan. So the UN negotiations in no way really allowed for the input or participation of other Afghan interest groups. So in other words, kind of the whole other side, if we could say there were two sides in this war, um, you know, none of the Afghan resistance groups had any sort of formal um, or and even at some points informal influence on the, on the negotiations. So what this meant in practice was that the Geneva Accords resulted in a Soviet withdrawal, but it did not include any plans or any mechanisms then um, for, for establishing sort of a post-withdrawal government. As a consequence, then, there's a lot of political wrangling that takes place. To some extent involving the US and the Soviet Union, to a much greater extent involving Pakistan, um, the PDPA, and these other and the local Afga- Afghan resistance groups. But effectively, none of the groups can agree on the shape of an interim government. War continues. The United States and the Soviets continue to keep funding um, and arming their sort of respective sides within this conflict. Um, and the civil war, as a consequence, continues and in a lot of ways grows worse um, because. You know some a lot of the alliances between different Afghan resistance groups that that kind of that were really important in the 1980s, a lot of those don't necessarily survive into the nineteen nineties, so there's increasing infighting.
1: You mentioned earlier the fact that um this uh episode, this event is one of the reasons why America continues to misunderstand Afghanistan today. Are there other ways in which you think that we need to have a better understanding of this period or of Afghanistan's history more generally, I suppose?
2: I think one of the things that I'm really keen to emphasize with this book in particular um, is that I think, at least from my perspective, and this might be unfair, but my my take on a lot of the kind of more recent discussions of Afghanistan, um particularly I suppose in kind of more public forums, is that Afghanistan keeps is often treated as a site of intervention rather than kind of rather than a country with its own history and a country that's populated by, you know, individuals and communities with their own interests and aims. So I think one of the things I'm really keen to emphasize, and I think one of the things that's really important in this book, is to think, you know, to take seriously the different kind of political and social ideas and aspirations and motivations that different Afghan, you know, groups brought, you know, brought to this conflict. You know, this conflict you know, the war of the 1980s is just as much about and was just as driven by these different Afghan groups, whether the PDPA, you know, whether kind of these Afghan Islamist organizations, other kind of political groupings or Afghan refugees themselves and Afghan civilians more broadly. Um, so the war is just as driven by them as it was by, you know, great power manipulation. So I think, you know, I think one of the things I really want to emphasize or the thing I think we need to think about is taking Afghanistan's history seriously and, you know, and recognizing the ways in which, you know, so many Afghans, and I should say, you know, my book, I really focus on Afghan elites and intellectuals who left written records that I can engage with. So I'm not saying I speak, this book does not speak, and I do not speak for, I suppose, kind of, you know, all or, you know, all Afghan citizens or everyday Afghan citizens, but certainly the Afghan intellectuals and elites that I write about, you know, they were very global in their, in their thinking. So they were certainly thinking about kind of not only what an Afghan nation should be, but also how should Afghanistan engage with the rest of the world. Um, So in that respect, I think one of the things that's really obvious then is that, you know, in that respect, Afghanistan is really not exceptional in a lot of the ways. And its 20th century history is not exceptional in a lot of ways. The fact that, you know, the Afghan government was wrestling with kind of constitution building or trying to sort of reform different political organizations or kind of social and economic practices, you know, that fits within a much you know, much broader history of the 20th century in terms of kind of being this moment when so many states that were emerging out of empires are trying to reform their politics and society. So Afghanistan is not at all, um, you know, is not at all unique in those processes. And Afghan elites and intellectuals were very aware of that. And they were engaging, you know, with elites and intellectuals from across the world, whether through the Non-Aligned Movement, through the various Afro-Asian sort of solidarity conferences, Um, you know, through exchanges with other sort of educational institutions, etc. You know, so they're really engaging with these kind of broader international discussions about, you know, what should a modern post-colonial nation state look like? Um, And so in that respect, you know, Afghanistan is part of a much broader social and political milieu in the 20th century. Um, And I think, though, it's a lot of a lot of kind of the promises and pitfalls Um, of modernization that really end up kind of coming to the fore in the war of the 1980s so this i you know there's there are so many hopes by a lot by a lot of these different afghan afghan individuals and groups of what afghanistan can become but the civil war really kind of prevents that from actually taking place ultimately
0: that was elizabeth leek Afghan Crucible, The Soviet Invasion and the Making of Modern Afghanistan is out now, published by Oxford University Press. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green.